together, if you will, uh, to 2 Peter chapter 3. And what I thought we'd do today is let's read the first six verses. It's kind of the heart of where we've been the last uh, more than a month, about six weeks now, where we've been um, is in these first six verses. Let's read them together, then we'll pray. And after that, we'll take a look specifically at what Peter is stressing in, in verse 5. But uh, beginning in, in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 1, Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through His apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, what is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come together together around your word, Father God, to sing first your praises, Father God, to enjoy your fellowship or the fellowship, God, of the body of believers, each other, God, to dwell in this family, Father. I thank you, God, for the, for the amenities, Father God, for the fact that we have peace at this time, Father God, and we can gather without harassment, Father, that we merely can come and sit down in a leisurely environment, take upon our, our laps the Word of God, Father God, and focus on it. I thank you for that, Father God. I don't know... Um, I don't know, God, how, how people in around the globe, Father, who don't have our luxury. I know, God, there's got to be an intensity to their focus, Father, because they don't know when the last time they're going to touch the Word is going to be. They don't know when they're going to be in prison or their lives are going to be taken away from them, Father God. They don't know how they're going to feed their families, Father. They don't know anything, God, uh, that we know, God, that we live in with, with a kind of surety, Father. I thank You for it, but I understand, Father God, that it is not, God at all, the, uh, God, the way things are always going to be. We believe the Word, Father God, and we know, Lord, that, that as you move, as time moves closer to that moment in which you will judge the lost world, Father God, in which you will set things right, Father, that, that things will become more difficult for us, Lord. We know this to be true. I pray, Father God, that as we focus on truths like this, that this is a time of preparation for us, for the church, that we're not, God, just... Just here to, for, for, to, to trivialize the Word, Father God, or minimalize it in our lives. But we're here, Father God, because we realize we need the Word. We need to know, God, exactly what comes before us so that so we can be ready, so that our families can be ready, so this church can be ready. So I pray, God, today that this is a, this, that the uh, sermon that's preached today, Father God, is first and foremost uh, of your authorship, Father God, that I have not done what I wanted, Father, but I followed where you led. I've come to your conclusions. And I pray, Father God, that the things of my arrogance that, that make their way in because I'm a wicked man and an imperfect servant, that you will brush those away from the minds of your church, Father God. And I pray, Father God, that more than anything else, the cross would be lifted up today. That unbelievers would hear the truth, Father God. They would be convicted of their sins. They would believe the gospel. That's what I pray for today, more than anything else, Father God. Expand the kingdom of God, uh, not by my power, but by your power, Father God, through the words that you have given me, Lord. I pray for that now, God. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Now, let's take just a moment and let's summarize what we've looked at. Like I said, for about 
five weeks now, I guess it is. Um, first off, Peter says this, that besides the fact that it's the second letter, we know it's Second Peter, that he is specifically stirring up sincere minds. Now, we'll take that as a euphemism for the fact that he's speaking to the church, to believers. These are sincere minds. These are minds and hearts given by God, um, enslaved to the gospel message, and, and who have been fortified by his biblical truth. And he's now trying to stir up those minds. He wants us thinking about things. He wants to capture the thought process of each of us so that it's not far afield or following the course of the lost world. Because oftentimes it is, isn't it? He wants believers thinking about the things that believers ought to be obsessed with. So he's stirring us up by way of reminder. And he says, what I'm reminding you of are what the holy prophets said and the apostles said. What you already know. The New Testament preaching concerning the day of the Lord and the Old Testament preaching concerning the day of the Lord. As we talked about before, there, so much of the Bible is just obsessed with the return of Christ. The second return. The one that we await right now. And then he says this, that understand that the reaction of the world to, to truth is always going to be scoffing. The, tr- the world hates it and its only reaction is to ridicule it. It's a long established um, reaction from, from liberalism just to make fun of what you don't like. Because there's no way to defend yourself against insults. And, and it's, there's a reminder too that we don't scoff in return. It's just one of those things the world does that we just don't do. That's not who we are. We don't scoff. Um, then he gives an example and the scoffing is that question... Well, if Jesus is coming back, then where is He? Because you've been promised that He's coming back the whole time. But He says, but yet the world seems to spin on. Seems to go on the way it's always been. Well, where is He? And then we get to verse verse 5, our our focus for today. And it begins in the most interesting language. Now, I don't know, I, I read a lot of translations. I didn't survey them all. The English Standard Version translates it, for they deliberately overlook this fact. It's pretty close there, to be honest with you. There's a fact out there they're just not willing to embrace. Now remember from the very beginning in 2 Peter, 2 Peter has been written to address false teachers. Not the world, not the scoffing world, but people who would contaminate the, the church with false teaching, with false doctrine, uh, false ways to salvation. Specifically for our time, those who would take liberal or what's called liberal or progressive Christianity and would therefore try to um, try to infiltrate infiltrate the believing church. Lead us to believe things that are not right. And then he says, but deliberately they turn their back on the truth. Now, I, I clung to that before we started notes very, very quickly. I clung to that for one reason. Because I realized that in my lost state, and probably in yours too, we haven't specifically addressed this among us, there's a lot of time that I, spent, uh, that I spent deliberately ignoring facts. When God overwhelmed my heart, I was not shocked. 
Because I knew. I knew good and well He was Lord all along. I knew good and well He had every right to claim me. Every right to tell me what to do. Every right to order my life. The fact was that I was so stubborn and I wanted my way so bad that I would ignore the rightful claims of a king that I very well knew was there. I'll go so far as to say this. I don't believe there's a single lost sinner who will stand in line at the great white throne of judgment among that throng that is condemned and say, I had no idea there was a God. Baloney. The Bible denies that fact. You can say what you want to. He is there. For those people in our local community, you'll say they're an atheist. It's a lie. It's just a lie. You're lying to yourself. Stop it. He's there, and you know he is. That's what makes you so mad. You know what? If atheists, nobody gets mad um, if there's no uh, imaginary character. People don't get furious about that. Why are they mad? Because he's really there. Because he has the audacity to be real, the audacity to be true. So they're deliberately ignoring this fact. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Now look, Peter draws our attention to the parousia again, to the judgment of the entire world that will accompany the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes back, judgment. Judgment. Opportunity for repentance. Gone. Christ comes to judge. The emphasis that Peter builds upon in this section of the letters that the false prophets have done what the church cannot afford to do. They forget the course of the history of the world. We can't forget everything that's been laid out before us. Now let me explain. It seems like a slight point. But I think it's really the whole point of the entire chapter. Let me explain. The word that is most necessary for our understanding in Greek is not present in this verse. It's actually in verse 6. But the next, but it defines the entire situation. Peter reminds the reader of the flood that destroyed the world in verse 6. He starts out with, with water in verse 5. Hearkening back to the, to the account of creation in Genesis. Where literally um, God in, in, his, in His infinite power speaks into the void of nothingness and creates the essentials of matter. Light and dark. Everything that would ever be created right there by God. The, the term that we use is what? Ex nihilo. Out of nothing. God speaks and there's everything. There's the intricacy of the... the have you ever seen the, the wings of an insect? Those tiny little, little lines that are the structure. He speaks and all of that comes into being. From magnificence to the microscopic. Does all of this. And then he orders, he speaks and he creates just simply the existence of matter. And then he orders that matter to the heavens and into the earth. He does all of these things. But then when he comes time to judge it, he judges it in similar fashion. The word that's used for the judgment is cataclysmos. In the Greek... It's, the meaning is to inundate or to flood, literally, from which we get the English term cataclysm, which we use to refer to any natural disaster, right? If there's an earthquake, we call it a cataclysm. 
Building falls down is a cataclysm, right? Typically they are natural, but they're not always associated with water, right? After making this connection, Peter begins to explain the focal verse that the method of God is a catechism. Excuse me, a cataclysm. He creates by His destructive power. The world did not, according to the truth of Genesis, eke its way into existence atom by atom through some slow billions and billions of years evolutionary process. But God literally spoke and it occurred in six days. In fact, the only real mystery of the six-day um, of the six-day creation is what? What took him so long? If you can speak and make all matter that will ever exist out of nothing, now not the way we've misunderstood it sometimes, that God finds a formless and void world and He brings order to chaos, that's nonsense. That would mean that there's matter that pre-exists God. God was alone. There was nothing but the glory of Himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in perpetual harmony with each other. And God, with the words of the mouth of Christ Himself, speaks into existence all you see. He could have done it in an instant, in an instant if He wanted to. He could have spoken it into existence from beginning to end in a moment. He did it and He took as long as He did to make a thousand points. To teach us through creation. But what he doesn't do is take billions and billions of years to do it. It's nonsense. It's biblical nonsense. It isn't eked out of the way. The way what happens, but instead was created complete and fully, fully formed in six days. As Moses tells us in Exodus 20 verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. See, and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. So therefore, because remember we are Christians. We are Bible believing men and women. The truth that we honor and possess comes from God by way of the Word. It means that how long did it take God to create the earth? Six days. Six days. Why? Because He said so. Six days. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's when we have a Sabbath. All that had at one time existed, the deep void of nothingness, in which the uh, eternal God dwelled would be overthrown and inundated with the creative purpose of God. He literally spoke and the entire world came into being. The cataclysm, the inundation of the will of God upon the world is the Lord's method of creation, restoration, judgment, and revelation. When God does things, He does them on a cosmic scale. When Christ hung for the sins of His people... When he breathed his last, when, when the records were all expunged, when the debt was finally paid, the earth shook. Why? Because when God does things, he does them on a cosmic scale. The world was in his hands when he did this. In light of this truth, explained in 2 Peter 3 5, is the, is the central theme for today. God's judgment surely comes. There's no doubt about that. Every word of the Bible is true and the Bible clearly declares that God comes to judge this world. It comes quickly and we must be ready. It will not 
slip up on you if you are aware. And it will not catch you unprepared if you make preparations now. As students of God's Word, we must understand that some matters such as the divulging of the kingdom of God through the church would come slowly. We know there's some things that God reveals slowly as Christ teaches in Matthew 13, 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. It's the leaven working its way through the dough. We understand there's some things. We understand that the blossoming of the church has taken the church age. Started small. It started with, with a handful of individuals. It's now grown to a worldwide faith. We know that there's some things being revealed slowly over the course of time. And those are, those are according to God's purpose. But we also know that the world began with the explosion of purpose spoken into being by Christ. Similarly, the world rests currently on the precipice of a violent and justified redemption. Awaiting the impending justice of God that will alter our reality for all eternity. Now I'm going to say this to you um, in, in just... In, in most direct language I can. Why preach about the second coming of Christ? Besides the fact that the Bible talks about it so much, reason number one is because Jesus is coming. And reason number two is because He brings justice with Him. We preach about the second coming of Jesus because when Jesus comes, Everyone will be held accountable. We preach judgment out of a sense of mercy in the hearts of those God has called. We would warn the world that Jesus comes. In Revelation 22, 12-13, Christ describes the event by saying, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. He's coming. What does He say He brings? Recompense. What's recompense? Paying people back. What they are owed. Can't be more direct than that. The God of all judgment, the one who sees with perfect sight, the one who knows every sin and every rejecter of the vital truth of the gospel, the one who knows all that, He looks and He sees. And what does He do? He comes to judge. Bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what He has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. When the lightning strikes, folks, and the trumpet sounds, when the eastern sky divides to welcome the coming King and Redemptor of all creation inaugurating the final cataclysm that will forever return God's world and His people to the glory of Eden. Because that's what God's coming back to do. It's not just to lay claim to His people. Thank God He is. It's not just to punish the guilty. Thank God He is. He's coming back. Why? Because He's going to restore this to what He created to start with. Like a broom taken to dusty footprints... He's going to wash away every memory of what is right now. Because none of it's worth keeping. You see, if we really believe this, folks, if we really believe this, 
we'll save up for eternity and we won't save up for right now. If we really believe this, I mean, we really believe that Jesus comes, we'll care a lot less about what's in the bank and about what more, and about, a lot more about what's stored up in heaven. We'll stop being a part of the world's system. The condemned and bankrupt system of this world. <clears throat> Christ, who is the beginning, the Creator God, will bring with Him the end to the suffering and shame of the cursed creation. At that moment, <clears throat> the twinkling of the eye of mankind, all the promises of God for judgment and salvation will be realized forever. He comes in that instant, that twinkling of an eye. He's here. He's here. At this time, the defining attribute is what remains unsettled. The declaration of Christ that, that uh, John records in, in Revelation chapter uh, chapter 22 is this. In verse 14 he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and then be enter the city by the gates. Now what he says is this very much so, is that when that great and glorious, that terrifying day comes, there are those of you who are going to be ready, who have washed your robes, you've made the preparations that are required to greet the Master. You are the wise virgins, and not the unwise who didn't fill their lamps with oil. You're ready for the bridegroom to come. What is at issue today is whether or not the blood has been applied to our hearts and lives. And likewise, through gospel witness, we preach the truth to the world around us. John writes in 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have the fellowship of the church because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us. Now, I know, certainly in John 6, when, when, uh, when Christ really preaches the depth of the saving symbolism of the gospel, um, it caused most of the so-called uh, disciples to flee, right? By the end of the chapter, he starts off a thousand, by the end he's back to the, back to the twelve, and one of them's a demon. And their, their response is, it's a hard thing. So I get sometimes we read here very hard things. I think that's why we try to, as often as we can, dumb it down. Just say this. Just pray this. You'll be okay. Folks, there's a mystery to the faith that is only wrought in a regenerate heart. And I can't sit here and tell you that all of what you have to understand and apply to your life is easy to get. I can tell you this much. Here's the reality. It starts off with a child's heart, but it probably takes a wrinkled brow to finally embrace it all.
just how complex it really is. So, we've got to walk in light as He is in the light. So the light is the answer. The Apostle Paul thoroughly explains our former condition as born-again believers and the remedy. He takes this idea in John is coming straight out of Paul. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, a very familiar verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we know now that the reason why the world stays so persistently lost is because the God of this world is blinding their eyes. And again, I don't know why it takes us, the believers, so long to really understand this. Because we were once blind, right? I think what gets in the way is that we never really ponder just how lost we really were. Because a lot of us embraced Christ at a very young age. We didn't really experience the true depths of godly grief until much later. Because I'll be honest with you, the sin of a 7 seven or 8-year-old and the sin of an 18-year-old are not the same, right? They both bring death, don't they? There's no doubt about that. There's only one wage that God gives us. But, but the rebellion of your 18th year and the rebellion of your, eight, of, your, of your 8 or 9 are just not the same, are they? Not at all. And I think it's, it's a good thing that sometimes we have to take some time and think, but wait a second, I was this man. I was that woman. Just how deeply you were a child of darkness. And don't make excuses. You were a child of darkness. You were just as blind as this world. So when we're scoffed at and criticized and attacked, remember we're being scoffed at and criticized and attacked by blind people. The veil still remains upon their heart. They can neither see nor believe the truth under their own power. Simply cannot. Keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, I would say this. If you want to start to look at the world, uh, at what I might call Christendom in kind of a snotty way, okay? But in the world of the church, who do you avoid? Who would Peter call the false prophets? Those who do what? Who proclaim themselves. Those men in the tight t-shirts and the $5,000 tennis shoes who talk about how good they are. And how great they are. And what, how great it is to be them. And they fly around in planes and they defame God. It's what they do. And one day, mercifully, they'll be cast into hell with the devil and the other false prophets. Who do they proclaim? Themselves. Paul, the Apostle Paul, author of 13 books, says what? He doesn't proclaim Paul. If anyone had a reason to brag... It was the chiefest of sinners saved on the Damascus road. But what does he do? I don't proclaim myself. We proclaim Jesus is Lord. We're just the servants. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We're just servants. 
There's the attitude of the pastor. There's the attitude of the deacon. There's the attitude of the Sunday school teacher. There's the attitude of the faithful believer. I don't proclaim me because I'm nobody. Saved by the grace of God and only by the grace of God. By the blood of Christ shed on Calvary. The only way I ever make it in. Nobody without Him. Finally, verse 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The unbelieving world is blind to the truth that is obvious around them. The bold declaration of the nature and glory of God that's hardwired into the created order, sullied somewhat by our sin. I admit, there's no doubt, we have ruined this world. Not God. We have done this. Our selfishness, our greed, our sin, our rebellion, our sedition, our treason has done this. We've done to this world what's been done to it, but not God. Yet He remains sovereign over it. And despite our sin, the fact that God is there, and that He died, and that He beckons, is evident nonetheless so they are without excuse. Without excuse. I don't preach to make men and women responsible. Do you know why? Because they're already responsible. Everybody. Every babe that ever draws breath is responsible. Everyone. However, the God of this world, Satan has blinded the eyes of the world with lies and delusion. Convincing the populace that matters that cannot be true are true. Causing them to deny even the basics of existence. Look folks, we live in a world right now that's dominated and defined by the normalization of rank perversion. That whatever is absolutely condemned by God is now celebratory. The deluding influence of Satan cannot be denied any longer. We don't look out upon this world and think, oh, maybe Satan's... No, we know Satan is fooling people. If you ever had a doubt, it should be removed. Compare what you see to what should be. The world believes as it chooses in order to gratify its own lust. Now, I can say that. Why? Because I was just like that. And so were you. You believed what you wanted to so that you could live the way you wanted to live and break your arm patting yourself on the back because of it. We were all beggars at our own demise. The lost cheer as God is insulted and they malign the only saving truth, the gospel. People burning their own houses down and cheering about it. To walk in the light, as John writes, have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ be shined upon your heart and life, illuminating all the inconsistencies, burning away the dross, and allowing them to see the true Christ. The saving God who died for their sins and urges them to repent and believe. That's what the light does, folks. You know why we repent of our sins and believe the gospel? Because God shined a light that burns away the veil. And we can't take it anymore. We now see who we are. We realize that it is now the moment of the piercing of our very hearts. We can either embrace God or die. That's what the light shows. It's not some warm light. 
It is the light of the inferno of the glory of God that shows every man, woman, and child exactly who they are. You can lie to anybody in the world you want to, but you can't lie to God. And when He shines a light on your life, you can't even lie to yourself. Because it is obvious what is going on. It's obvious who you are. That's walking in the light. On the path of absolute, unavoidable truth. And not the easy path of lies that the world takes. By way of the gospel preached and testified to by the Lord's church, the hearts of the lost that are held under the dominion of fear, hate, and lies will be shown the love of the true Christ who died for their sins and beckons to them right now. God's calling. There's no doubt about it. The convicting power of the glory of God through His gospel is calling to hearts right now. Men and women who hear what is being said, who realize that their lives do not measure up, who understand today that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to stop rejecting the true God and to embrace God. Look, the truth of the gospel offers sanctuary to the weary soul. The lost are exhausted. They're, they're burning themselves out trying to justify themselves. Trying to make daily excuses for how they live and what they do and what they think and who they are. The cross is a place in which we give all that up. We embrace a holiness that we could never earn that was earned by Jesus. The works done by Christ. We could not do it. We never could. Our righteousness is filthy lucre's rags. It's dirty diapers, it's nothing. It's refuse to be thrown away. All our trying and failing is nothing but refuse. But what does He do? He earned it. On the cross, Christ did. The Gospel freely offers belonging and hope. Commodities that are rare and costly in a world of lies and deception. Yeah, everybody in the world is trying to fit in somewhere. They're trying to find friends and companions and a family. I've talked to, my, to my, my kids before about this. It seems so strange to me that of all the movies that I watch nowadays, it seems like almost every movie is about one, one idea. Redefining family. Taking a group of unrelated people and making them... Most of the TV I watch is about the redefinition of family. And I don't necessarily mean in a bad way. I mean people alone in a harsh world who come together to love and protect each other. Well, that's what a family really is, isn't it? People who love and protect each other in a harsh world. But here's the reality. If you're in this world, you've got to pay your way into the family. And they always want something. And when you, when you run out of the ability to pay, what do you do? You're out. You can no longer contribute. You're left behind. What does it cost to be in the family that the world offers? Everything. Everything you've got. And everything you can borrow and everything you can steal. But to belong to the family of God, the price is infinite. The blood of Jesus, but it's already been shed. To belong to the family of God costs a man nothing. To belong to the family of the world costs a man everything. Because there is no one in this world to trust. 
The Gospel urges that we trust Christ. As David writes in Psalm 9.10, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. When a man or a woman repents of their sin and believes the Gospel, they put their trust in Christ. The name above every name. The only name by which a person can be saved. And the Lord will never forsake nor lose those who put their trust in Him. As He says, in the Old Testament, Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Because God, why do we know that we embrace Christ as Lord and Savior? We'll never ever be lost again. Because we can change, but He never changes. Because He is immutable. If Christ could change, we'd be in, we'd be in bad trouble. But the fact of the matter is, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't care if you're good for your word or not. He is. It's based on Him, not you. You're saved because of His work, not your work. Your work's worthless. It's filthy lucre. It's trash. His is infinitely wonderful. His work shook the globe. It rent the veil. The alternative is a grim reality, folks. To choose the opposite. To go the opposite direction. To walk away from Christ, to ignore the gospel, is a terrible place. The grim reality that warns the future of those who reject the only truth can be can free me, the only truth that can free a person from the penalty of their sins. In Revelation twenty two verse fifteen, John writes, "Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood." Every man and every woman defined only by the sin of which they are so proud. The one thing I like about this world today is that people don't pretend anymore. We used to do it and lie and say we didn't. Now we do it and we put it on Facebook. Now we do it and we brag about it. It is who I am. It is my very definition. Every act of sedition and treason, every willful moment, every selfish ambition, every lustful intention is all that these people have to show God. And it does nothing more than make Him turn His wrath upon them. Because if I don't choose, and I use that word very lightly, if I don't place my trust today in the finished work of Christ and His infinite righteousness, the only other choice I have in a binary system is to choose what? My own righteousness. I will be justified before God because of all my sin. And all these things I do. By relying on falsehood and rejecting truth, the world condemns itself to the awfulness of eternal perdition. To a sinner's hell where the love of Christ does not dwell. When I choose my way and not God's way, I have chosen hell. There's where your choosing leads you folks, right there. There's where your will will lead you right there. Straight to the gates of hell. Look, this is Peter's point. Again, God's judgment surely comes. It comes quickly and we must be ready. And I would ask that question. Are you ready today for the eastern sky to divide? Are you ready today for the return of Christ? Will you greet Him with an Amen? Or cry out, Oh no. Which will it be? 
Christ taught us in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Church, live like the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ has been shown upon your heart. Be a witness to the truth of Christ before the time has elapsed and the world must answer for its sin in hell. Yet, folks, that world, those very ones that we talk about that would want to be defined by their sin, they're not far away anymore, are they? They're close. We know them. They're our friends and they're our neighbors. They're our loved ones. We have a responsibility to the truth, first and foremost, folks, for those that we care about. For those that we care about. To warn those who face an infinite judgment. At the same time, unbelievers, beloved of us, do not be so sure of the falsehoods that have you trapped. And these lies outside of Jesus is only condemnation and death. Jesus died for you though. Suffered for you, paid your price upon Calvary, and now calls to you to repent and believe the Scriptures. That's the call today. If you do not know where to turn, turn to God today. Turn to His everlasting mercy. Throw yourself upon the mercy of the ultimate and infinite Judge. Repent of your sins and believe what the Bible says. For you, if you believe in the Son, you will have eternal life. Those are not my words, but those are Christ's words. If you believe in the Son, you will have eternal life. That is the promise of God. Let's stand together.